In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to The Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we are going to be talking about some really bad faith arguments against Biden's infrastructure deal. Mm -hmm. Then we are going to dive into trans rights, specifically talk about some bills that have been proposed and or passed around the country that are terrible. Uh, And then we're going to have a conversation about Marxism, like what it is why ultimately we disagree with it, but what it can offer an overall academic perspective um, to all of us. So uh, I'm really excited about this episode. Yeah, me too. Marxism has been uh, on the docket in some way for a long time, so I'm glad we're actually going to talk about it. And as always, if you get value from the show and you want to support it, uh, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash theperspectrum and throw us a couple of bucks. You'll get some access to some great top-quality exclusive patron content um and uh you'll be supporting a show that you like so it's a win-win asking for money not very marxist of you (laughs) (laughs) well i don't know about that i mean (laughs) they're the ones that own the money so i think (laughs) all right so uh start us off with the covid numbers michael all righty. So in the world so far, we've had 134.3 million cases, which is up from 130.1 million last week, which is about a 3.3% increase in total cases. Uh, so far, we've had 2.91 million people that have died from COVID, which is up from 2.84 million last week, which is about a 2.5% increase or about 70,000 uh, more deaths than the previous week, um, which is a little bit smaller of an increase uh, compared to the week before, but still elevated above March numbers. Um, So far in the world, 9.2 doses have been administered for every 100 people, um, which is pretty awesome. That's up from 7.8 doses per 100 people last week. Um, And if, if each one of those doses went into one individual arm, then, you know, you're looking at 10%, almost 10% of the world uh, with at least one shot, which is pretty incredible. But we should keep in mind that those doses are almost exclusively concentra- uh, concentrated in uh, wealthier nations. Um, yeah. So, so more poor nations are are getting are looking at like years before they're able to uh, to yeah. reach herd immunity in their populations. Which, which I mean, for the sake of um, uh, for the sake of the world, for the sake of like uh, the fact that more people getting the virus ends up prolonging the pandemic overall. I mean, that's an important argument for why richer countries really do need to be subsidizing poorer countries on this. Yeah. I think that's totally right. Like if you think about if like, if poorer countries continue to have this virus circulate, it's just more opportunities for it to mutate into something that we can't handle. Yeah. So even if you don't look at it from the point of view of, hey, they're humans, we should help them. It also affects us. Yeah. We're on the same planet. And, you know, the more people have it, the more likely there are to be variants. Yeah. And variants 
can sometimes rule vaccinations less effective. Fortunately, the UK variant doesn't seem to be uh, making the current vaccines less effective, but Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know what the future could hold. Yeah, exactly. So basically... Uh, if you're a Democrat or Republican, you should support giving it to, uh, to poor countries. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the U.S., so far, 31.7 million people have gotten COVID, which is, uh, that's nearly 10% of the U.S. population at this point. So almost almost one in 10 people have gotten COVID. Um, that's up from 31.2 million last week. So that's about 500,000 new cases, which is pretty much the same increase we saw um, from the prior week. Um, testing positivity rates are are hovering right around 4.8% and have been there for the last two weeks. Um, we've also reached 574,000 deaths in the U.S., which is up from 566,000 last week. So that's for the third week in a row, that's about 1,100 new deaths per day. Um, and so we're kind of in this weird spot in the U.S. right now because, you know, 33% of the population has received at least one dose, um, you know, 19% of the population is fully vaccinated, and yet we're still seeing for like three weeks straight, we've had the same rate of like new cases, we've had the same rate of new deaths, and pretty much the same positivity rate. Um, so like until we like really reach herd immunity or get closer to it, we might not start to see these numbers significantly decline. Yeah, yeah. And you know, herd immunity could be anywhere between like 70, 80%. Yeah. So this is another reason why it is super important that as soon as you can get the vaccine, yeah, get it. Yeah. And what's really nice is there's, there's some good news coming out of the Biden administration. Um, as it turns out, based on current projections, every adult in the United States uh, will be eligible for a vaccine by April 19th. That's great. And that, yeah, that is absolutely amazing. And I, I just got to say, mad credit to the Biden administration. Sure. I now, mean, now that is to say that, like, you know, just because you're eligible doesn't mean there is a dose for you to take. So we've been yeah. increasing, like, the inoculated part of our population by about 4% every week for, like, the past four or five weeks. So that seems like unless we like significantly ramp up our rate of administration and production, like it's probably going to be about three months before we reach herd immunity fully. But like that's not that's like light at the end of the tunnel. That's like three months until we have enough of the population inoculated that life can go, you know, substantially back to normal. If everybody that get that can get the vaccine does get the vaccine, if only 50 percent of the population sign up, you know. Yeah. We're screwed. That's a problem. Yeah. That that's a huge problem. And thing is, there are some people that I know in my personal life that are not planning on getting the vaccine for yeah, one too. reason or another. I've yep. been hearing some really crazy conspiracy theories about it. Yeah. That are even crazier than previous ones. Like I was uh, in my class, I was talking to one of my students who was a nursing student, and apparently there's this conspiracy theory going around that apparently there are bits of dead uh, aborted fetus in the vaccines, <laughs> but also who care? Like what? what so what, what do you care? <laughs> it do, well, it prevents you from getting a deadly disease. Pump me well, full of how? fetus toes. <laughs> but how? Like 
how how could that like in what world would it make sense sure. to put bits of aborted fetus in a vaccine? Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. Like like you know how when we were younger and boomers always told us, "Hey, don't believe everything you see on the internet. <laughs> All right? You, everybody on the internet is basically a sexual predator who wants to kill you. Mm-hmm. Like, and then, and then so, they became QAnon. <laughs> and then they became QAnon. It's like, don't believe everything you read on the internet 10 years later. Oh my God, there are bits of dead fetuses in my vaccines. <laughs> How do you know? Well, I saw someone randomly post about it on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's ridiculous. And personally, it's, I'm yeah. looking forward to getting 5G. So, <laughs> God, <laughs> I mean, come on, that's like the best benefit ever. Like, yes, please. Okay. <laughs> okay. Why? Why wouldn't you want your phone to work better? All right. <laughs> Just that's another conspiracy theory. It's yeah. not real microchips yeah you know like the ones you have in your why the yeah why would they inject it into your body when they already got it in your they've already sold it around voluntarily yeah exactly like you voluntarily carry around your phone it has a microchip in you they can see you they can hear you whenever they want to there's a reason why (laughs) you why when you start looking up conspiracy theories about the covid vaccine you start seeing more conspiracies about the covid vaccine and that's because, because they have algorithms. They're watching you. Yeah, they already have all that information. It's so funny. It is like yeah. you literally volunteer. You pay them thousands of dollars to listen to you. And now yeah. you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. No, the, the fact of the matter is you're not the customer. You're the product. Yeah. All right. You're the product that they are basically selling to various different um ad companies, various different products that are advertised on various different sites. And they specifically want to push you towards the sites that you're going to spend a lot of time looking at, Mm -hmm. because the more time you spend looking at those sites, the more you look at ads, the more you might buy their shit. Yep. I mean, (laughs) we're all, we're all a part of it. Yeah. It doesn't get much more microchippy than that. So like literally, why would they even worry about it? Why? 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 Mind control is already end? here. To what end? You you volunteer for it every single day. So anyway, <laughs> you're already in the matrix. Rant aside. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They exactly. handed you the plug and you plugged yourself in. That's like, what happened. Oh, awesome! Funny cat videos. <laughs> it's funny because we're like, like you and I both absolutely are part of this, and like, oh yeah, it's 100%. just hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, we sign up for it all the time. We do. All right. And it's because we don't want to pay for our for our internet. Yeah. Or we don't want to pay for our Facebook or our Google. We, we don't want to pay for them. Yeah. So the way these companies pay for it is by basically ads that yeah. they get revenue from, from pushing us towards specific things. And you know and who's trying to make it all worse? Joe Biden. By Joe trying Biden. to have internet in every home in America. <laughs> that bastard. That, oh, How man. is that even infrastructure? <laughs> it's not infrastructure that makes it bad. So that delightful transition is going to bring yeah. us over to talk about um, some of the I really mean, ridiculous arguments uh, being thrown around about the infrastructure plan. I mean, it kind of worked. Yeah, no, I think it worked. I think it worked. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Plus, it's so, our show. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> so last week we we talked about Biden's infrastructure plan. We spent a whole segment kind of digging through the plan, talking about how it's funded, um, talking about you know some common arguments against it and why they don't really hold water. Um, and so if you if you want a refresher on the plan itself, uh, you know you can head to last week's episode. So basically, the plan includes a bunch of stuff. Like it includes obviously roads, bridges, railroads, airports, but also um, as pretty much every like big infrastructure bill has back to like FDR and the New Deal and the Civilian Conservation Corps, it is also a jobs and economics bill. Yeah. And so it invests in not only, you know, jobs for today in the form of like actually making these infrastructure improvements, but also jobs of tomorrow via education, uh, investing in clean energy, um, doing job training, expanding broadband access, all of this stuff. So it's a big comprehensive plan and it covers things like traditional infrastructure, but also like infrastructure for the future. Yeah. And our current rating of infrastructure is embarrassing. As the country with the highest GDP in the world, we should have the best infrastructure. Yeah. But we don't. And like there, there are some bridges that are decades old mm-hmm. that haven't been updated in, in decades. Um, and honestly, technology has advanced significantly. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a good argument to be made that because internet has become essential yeah. to life in in our country, you know, uh, it's become essential to sending emails for your work or, uh, I mean, for a lot of people, we work on the internet from home mm-hmm. during, d- during the pandemic. It is absolutely, it absolutely makes sense to broaden the definition of infrastructure to include stuff like that. Yeah. But, but let's, Let's let's focus on that argument for a second. Yeah, I agree. Because one of the biggest arguments that a lot of people on the right, and honestly, a lot of people in mainstream media have been trying to make, is so much of what is in this bill is not even infrastructure. In fact, only 5% of it focuses on roads and bridges. So apparently roads and bridges are the only thing that is involved in infrastructure. I know it seems obvious that the next logical step is, well, okay, but that's very specific. Yeah. Like roads and bridges, that's, that's very specific. There's so many other things All that kinds could of very other easily. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know, railroads, water, sewers, mm-hmm. the electrical grid. I nope. mean, nope. Infrastructure <laughs> is only stuff you drive on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. Uh, like the structure that our nation is built on our highway system for sure our rail system sure but also our electric grids our federal and uh, state buildings our like uh, public facilities are all in terrible disrepair like we're constantly being warned about the and, and and receiving reminders about the fallibility of our electric grid and the potential yeah. that it is not going to be able to keep up with the future um, yeah. and our electric demand. Like we saw extreme blackouts in Texas. Um, yeah. People died. Yeah, people died. And like these things are related. We have not put funding towards making sure that our that 
that the basics of our nation are, you know, well taken care of and and uh, and maintained properly and restored properly. And so, like, there's so much more than roads and bridges that's required for even from a traditional infrastructure perspective. There's just a ton of investment that's needed there. Yeah. And even if we put aside that argument and focus on the things in it that are kind of hard to make the argument that are infrastructure. For example, it invests in elderly care facilities. Mm-hmm. All right. So even if you want to focus on stuff like that, my response to be, who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> like, if it's a good thing, then what does it matter if it's not technically infrastructure? If it's a good thing, if it would be good for it to be passed, why does it matter if it's not infrastructure? And that brings us to the real reason why this is a bad faith argument, because it's a red herring. Yeah. All right. The way that they're trying to do this, the way that right-wingers are trying to make this argument is they know that if they come out and say, I am against funding for elderly care facilities, mm-hmm. I am against funding for, you know... Name the good thing in the bill that like, happens. Yeah, name whatever good thing. They know that if they come out and say that, they're going to come off as an asshole. Yeah. Like, everybody's going to be like, are you kidding me? You think that it's bad to be funding el- elderly care facilities? Are you serious? Are you a monster? Yeah. But if they're able to couch it in this idea of, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not making arguments against that. I'm just saying it's not infrastructure. So yeah. it, it should be in another bill. One that but I can't, guarantee you if you said, yeah. okay, so here's a bill right now with just the elderly care. Here's a bill right now, just just clean funding towards that. Are Republicans going to vote for that? Can we pass that without the need for budget reconciliation? Oh, oh, you're against that? Oh, okay. Yeah. So then you don't care about the definition of infrastructure. You just don't agree with what's in the bill. And like, of course they don't fucking care about the definition of infrastructure like who would who could possibly care about that like and that's like when they passed a huge tax cut blowing off our deficit you know like it was called the tax cuts and jobs act it was just a tax cut there's no jobs in it yeah you know and it's like so like did you care that it was a job? It wasn't a jobs yeah. bill then, like. And also, they they certainly didn't give a shit about the definition of deficit neutral. No, absolutely <laughs> not. And so, like, yeah, and and so to that point, like, also, like, Democrats just I, I don't think we're really taking this, but we shouldn't take it because yeah. the idea that like, oh man, we like really mixed up our bills here. We we didn't even mean to include all these good things in this infrastructure bill. Like, just call it an infrastructure and jobs and and education bill, or or you know, like. Yeah. The idea that an infrastructure that any bill has to be yeah. just one kind of bill is yeah. is it is exactly that Nathan it is totally yeah. a red herring and it's one they've oh, used just... often like they like trying to call call everything that you include in a bill that isn't like in the title of the bill like pork and extra stuff and and government yeah. waste and government overreach it's just trying to say that when you bundle yeah. things together um you know you are trying to to trick people and the thing is you can only do reconciliation a certain amount of times a year as per senate rules i believe it's three times a year mm-hmm. and we've already done it once this year yeah so of course they want to try to bundle in as order much as they to can ta- in order to pass a bill 
that was necessary. Like we couldn't get Republican votes to pass a COVID relief bill that was basically, basically had the same that bill they'd already passed. that they'd yeah. already passed. We just needed it again. And yet we couldn't. And, and for the exact same reason, you know, it's not good faith because of the way they've treated uh They've treated things that they would support had a Republican had yeah. if Republicans were were leading the country. The other thing I would say is, I would argue that almost everything in this bill is could be included under a slightly broader definition of infrastructure. Like if you think of infrastructure as the necessary components that your um, your economy runs on the necessary rails that your economy runs on, then a lot of this stuff is infrastructure. You can't have our modern economy without good education. And so an education infrastructure is required, that which includes good policies and good schools and all of these programs is required in order to have our economy. So I think like that could totally be included. Um, so like, So the idea that we need to deal with this narrow definition when really we should be thinking less about the definition and more about the fact that we can't get these great policies passed except by trying to include them in a in a infrastructure bill under budget reconciliation like there's a deeper problem yeah. there yeah exactly yeah exactly another major bad faith argument that a lot of conservatives have been doing is quite possibly the most predictable mm -hmm. argument that we all knew that they were going to start making again as soon as a Democrat was president, which is, of course, the deficit. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is going to explode the deficit. It's going to add to the debt. And future generations are going to have to pay that off. So the first important point to make against that is the fact that when it was tax cuts for the rich, yeah, when it was a tax bill, where after 10 years, 80% of all benefits would go to the top 1%. When it was that, when it was that bill, oh, well, you know, it's it's necessary. It's needed. Oh, it's going to be deficit neutral. Oh, it wasn't deficit neutral? Well, who cares? Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, McConnell even at the time, he even had the, he even had the backbone to say, oh, well, this huge hole that was blown in the deficit by the tax bill, damn, Guess we got to cut Social Security and Medicaid. <laughs> yeah. Like, he actually said that. Yeah. Um, so, so it's important to note that Republicans are huge hypocrites on this. Yes. I mean, we had a surplus under Bill Clinton, and then uh, Bush exploded the deficit, gave us a major deficit with the Iraq War and the, tax, and the Bush tax cuts, and then Obama brought down the deficit mostly by uh, raising taxes on uh, on the rich not by much but by a little bit um and also by you know uh, in, in a lot of ways the stimulus package that he passed allowed for this economic recovery that mm -hmm. uh, led to a lot of the decrease in that deficit um and then of course trump comes into office and he explodes the deficit with a tax cut bill yeah. that was primarily for the rich Yep. See, I, I think we, we really need to dispel this stupid narrative that Republicans are the fiscal responsible ones and the Democrats mm -hmm. are the ones that are just going to, you know, spend willy nilly on stuff. Yeah. History just doesn't support that. I yeah. mean, if you are a deficit hawk, which, you know, 
I don't even think that being a deficit hawk is always a, a good thing to begin with. But if you are a deficit hawk, then the Democrats are your party mm-hmm. because the Republicans are always exploding the deficit. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. That's what they do. Also, like, fear of the deficit and fear of national debt is based on, from the Republicans' perspective, the fear-mongering they do on that is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what that's for. You know, so, like, Republicans equate... And, and I'm sure they're not doing this by accident. They're doing it on purpose. They equate our national deficit to credit card debt. They equate it to someone who is spending, who is outspending their means and accumulating uh, debt as a result. And granted, sometimes that's true. When we invest in things that don't have a return, that's true. When we invest in things like another aircraft carrier that doesn't yield a financial benefit like that should be that should require a pretty hefty justification but something like this infrastructure bill is not a not just spending it's not like you're out there buying a bunch of you know like a bunch of fast cars which is i I would argue is the equivalent of our military spending you are investing like a business would invest in capabilities of the future in the fact that you know when you educate your workforce, they have the ability to produce more value for the future. And yeah. so it is about it is about investment and return, not about spending. Spending is itself a red herring term. If you're thinking about a corporation, and you know, you don't want to like stretch these analogies between governments and corporations too far, but when you think about a corporation, like there are expenses, but then there are also investments. And they borrow money all the time, like 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 uh, Amazon and Tesla, and um, like they they borrowed tons and tons of money in order to quickly ramp up investments that would pay off huge in the future. They didn't turn a profit for years in order to continue to invest in the growth of their business, and now they are some of the most valuable organizations on earth. Like the idea that that borrowing money is a bad thing is a red herring argument. It's about what you're borrowing it for. Yeah. I mean, if you're borrowing it to make sure that bridges aren't falling down, to make Mm -hmm. sure that our uh, energy grid is updated and can handle our means, that it runs on clean energy so that, you know, the, the world is still here. In 50 years? Yeah, that's a pretty big investment in the future. That's a pretty big investment. Um, Then it's a good thing. If it's so that rich people can afford another yacht, so they can afford to to increase their own bonuses, Mm -hmm. then no, it's not a good thing. It's a stupid thing. That relates directly to another criticism, which I won't spend too much time on, but basically Republicans claiming that this is the Green New Deal but like couched in an infrastructure bill. First of all, no, it's not. (laughs) I wish it it was. Yeah, if only. (laughs) But secondly, I think actually Pete Buttigieg did an amazing job articulating why these two things are intertwined. He said, quote, you can't separate the climate part from this vision because every road we fix, every bridge we build, we can either do it in a way that's better for the climate or worse for the climate. Why wouldn't we want to to be creating jobs in a way that's better for the climate? Yeah, it's about, you know, like like we said, it's about investing in the future, but also like 
every one of these decisions has climate implications. And so to pretend like there isn't, like you shouldn't be uh, investing um, in that is, is just trying to keep your head in the sand. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, and, you know, uh, infrastructure is not really going to matter if, you know, we all burn up because of climate change. Yeah. So I'd say that's a pretty damn good investment. Um, yeah. Also, another, the, the last argument that I want to talk about, the last bad faith argument that I want to talk about is another painfully predictable argument, which is the hissy fits over the modest raising of the corporate tax rate. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Larry Kudlow, who you might recognize that name from the Trump administration, or you know, if you're a little bit older, you might recognize that name from, um, I mean, various other incredibly stupid analysis throughout mm-hmm. history, like when he predicted that uh, there was not going to be a financial crash in uh, 2008 which we all know the tragic end of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is a guy who is quite famously uh, terrible at everything related to economic um, uh, economic predictions. So anyway, he actually went so far as to basically say that this is just an ideology of uh, redistribution mm-hmm. and that this comes right from Karl Marx. Like he compared the Biden administration to Karl Marx. To be clear, <laughs> what the Biden administration is proposing in this tax cut or in this is in this tax increase is raising the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, which is lower than it was prior to Trump's tax bill. Which by the way, should demand a fuck ton of criticism on the Biden administration for not at least putting it back to what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it should be higher than that. But that's Marxism, apparently. Raising the taxes, raising taxes slightly on the rich is Marxism. And again, I, I this is one of those cases in which this argument is so fucking stupid that I almost feel like I'm doing uh, the opposition a disservice by even addressing it. But it's yeah. Larry Kudlow yeah. on Fox News, on Fox Business, making this argument. This is a guy with a microphone mm-hmm. and people can hear him and they hear him. And if they're not educated on this topic, then they're going to hear that and think, oh, wow, huh. I guess he's Marxist. I guess he's a communist. Yeah. If we raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, then we're going to develop into a communist society and turn into communist Russia. Like, it's it's so ridiculous. And, and they always got to take it to the most hyperbolic possible place to where the people that are going to listen to this are not going to be the people that um, critically think through what they hear. They're going to be reactionaries. They're going mm-hmm. to be people that hear this. It'll target their fear receptors, and then it'll push them to go out to the polls. They're not trying to have a conversation. They're not trying to actually make things better mm-hmm. by you know having a, a free marketplace of ideas so we can duke out um, our yeah. potential proposals and the best ones we'll yeah. raise to the top. What they're trying to do is they're trying to win no matter what. They're trying to win no matter 
how much manipulative tactics they have to do. They're trying to get their agenda implemented regardless of facts or reason because they know who benefits the most from um they know who benefits the most from their ideology and it ain't the working class. Yeah. It ain't average everyday Americans. Yeah. That and and the thing is that's the thing. The Biden administration has repeatedly said if you have better ideas about how to fund this this spending, we want to hear them. Like let's come to the table. Let's talk about like we don't they've already adjusted some of their their plans to fund this based on feedback that they've gotten. Like they're interested in getting alternative ideas out there, but the Republicans are not interested in engaging in that way. They just want to to do whatever is the opposite of what the Democrats are doing. Yeah. The last the last bad faith argument that I want to touch on really fast relates directly to one you mentioned, which is similar to the the fear-mongering socialism argument. They're trying to make out of this, out of out of a bill about jobs and infrastructure, they're trying to make a like Americanism culture war type argument. They're trying to make it about that, that this bill is somehow upend American life. So Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, who is on uh, the Senate's Environment and Public Works Committee, um, said they're terming it social infrastructure. Never heard that before. I think we need to talk about the Amer- uh, talk to the American people and say, is this what you envision for infrastructure? Are these job creators? Are we en- are we reengineering our social fabric here with a fifty vote majority? Reengineering our social fabric—that's what she thinks this bill is doing. And also, people don't care about like about whether their job is is working at a coal plant or working on a solar farm. Like they want a job that they can do that can support them. And uh, and and Representative Jim Banks said um, he was referring to the bill and said that it's not going toward helping uh, the American people, but going towards ideologically transforming America. No, it's not. <laughs> That's the thing. No, it's what not. What does that even mean? It, it and, and exactly, it's the same. It's ideologically it's all the same. transferring like like to an ideology. In which the government actually does Helps. something yeah. to help the people, in which your taxpayer dollars actually go towards something go go towards something that benefits you. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, it, exactly. It's like they're they're using the same tactics, and it's painfully obvious that they just don't apply. But yeah. but to some people, they'll see they'll ring true for sure. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments: tips for good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because I'm sorry I don't understand where all of this is coming from. I thought that we were fine. Your head Mm. is running wild again. My dear, we still have everything, and it's all in your mind. Sounds like gaslighting. Is that what that is? (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that song. It's it's about a, it. It's a just could be a reason, by a uh, pink. Oh no! It's it's about like you know someone who thinks that their relationship is is ending, and like you know one person's like, oh, I'm, this is out of nowhere. Just give me a reason why you think we're not doing well. Hmm. Sounds like and also uh, <laughs> the world. <laughs> anyway, also the world a better place. Yes. Oh that's, yes. That's gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. 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 That makes sense. 
Maybe it's because I didn't do the chorus. Mm. I usually do the chorus. That's true. That's the catchy part of songs. <laughs> Maybe you yeah, just sang it know. next time like Pink, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that was also the guy from um I was it was it was Pink and Oh, what's what's the guy's name? God, I don't remember the guy's name. It was it was a duet with the, the guy from uh, another band, and now I'm forgetting what the guy's name is. Mm, this is some top quality content. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? Okay, our tip for good this week is a kind of a classic uh, me style tip for good for a show like this, and it is to be aware of your cognitive biases when making financial decisions uh, to keep them from holding you back financially. Michael's got this one. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to quickly walk through a couple of these. Um, The first of which is called loss aversion. So this is basically when you would either, when you would essentially forego a greater value in order to keep from risking a lesser value. So from an economic perspective, that's a clearly irrational choice. You could, you could get something that's better, uh, but instead you don't want to risk what you already have. Um, and, and that comes into play with your money when uh, you are thinking about the potential losses of placing your money in the stock market, for example, which doesn't take a lot of sophistication to do successfully and can really pay dividends, literally and figuratively. Um, so, like, for example, you could buy a well-diversified portfolio of just shares in, like, a stock fund. And you could see, on average, between 7 and 10% compound annual growth over the long term. So let me, let me think about, let me like just walk you through taking a quick example. So say you took 1000 bucks, and because you were loss averse, you put it under your mattress because hmm. you wanted to keep it safe. And then I took 1000 bucks, and because I wasn't loss averse, I put it in a well-diversified portfolio in the marketplace. In 10 years, because of inflation, the money under your mattress, safe and sound, would be worth $850 because it loses value every single year you try to keep it instead of grow it. But the money that I put in the stock market over that 10 years, averaging 7% annual growth, would have been worth twice as much as I put in. It would have been worth almost $2,000. And so if you think about the difference between our strategies, all of a sudden you've lost 150 bucks and I've made a thousand bucks with the same starting amount of money because you were averse to loss and I was willing to take some risk in order to invest in growth. All right. The second one is really fast, much faster. It is time discounting. So that's basically the idea that you want something now. And so you would, you would pay more to have something now rather than hold out for bigger rewards later on. Um, So that's basically like, say you spend a thousand bucks on a TV today. Remember, if you took that same thousand bucks and put it in the stock market instead of spending it on a TV, it could be worth 2000 bucks in 10 years. And the third one that I wanted to talk about is bandwagon bias. And that's basically the, the, the bias that you want to hop on with uh, whatever is the popular thing that lots of people are doing. I, th- I think with social media, this is like a bigger risk now than ever. But the worry here is that when something's really popular, it tends to drive up prices. You know, a Gucci belt does the same job as a 
$10 belt from Walmart, but because lots of people want it, you pay a thousand bucks for it. And so, and so trying to check yourself when you're considering whether something will actually add value to your life for the extra money, or if really it's just, um, a cognitive bias that's tricking you into thinking that it will add value to your life when it actually won't. Oh, I actually have an example for this. Oh, perfect. Um, so you mean more, more available to people than my Gucci belt example? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I hope this is more available. So, so video games, right? When Mm. a video game first comes out, if we're talking about a triple A game, then we're usually referring to then the price is probably going to be about 60 bucks. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as the game comes out, it'll be about 60 bucks. All right. So you might be really excited for this game. And you might want to buy it as soon as it comes out. And then you might play it once and then never play it again. Mm-hmm. And that's $60 that, you know, yeah, you might've had a lot of fun with it, but um, that 60 bucks is now gone. And it was used for a video game that maybe you're not planning on playing again. Mm-hmm. However, if you wait until that video game goes down to 40 bucks, which might take a year or so, um, or even to 30 bucks, or even until there's a massive sale mm-hmm. on Steam. Steam often has like insane, insane sales. I bought like the entire Half-Life series for like $5 mm-hmm. um, because there was this, there was this sale that had, had gone on. Um, then, you know, you, you, then you save some money in that regard. Yeah. And it's because you waited yep. uh, for a little bit um, because you you didn't just buy what was popular and what was in high demand. Yeah. And you might have ended up playing the game for about the same amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. So that's tips for good. For our second segment, we want to talk about an issue that we both feel passionately about. Um, and that is more and more in the news because protections for this group are under assault more and more it seems every day and and that's specifically talking about uh rights of the trans community yeah so in recent years there have been there's been a significant uptick in legislation trying to restrict trans rights that's from you know the the bathroom restrictions that we we saw in uh, I guess 2015 and 2016, and and this year a total of 82 bills have int- been introduced across uh, state legislatures in this session uh, that seek to uh, discriminate against trans people in various ways, um, and that includes you know 15 states that have bills that are still active in front of the legislature that prohibit certain kinds of health care for trans youth, uh, 32 states that have bills barring trans youth from sports uh, that align with their gender identity, six states that have bills uh, that would allow for the um, exclusion or the discrimination of trans people based on uh, religious grounds. So basically, you know, being able to, ex- uh, to refuse to treat people because, you know, in, in medical care. Uh, because of your religious beliefs, um, yeah. So just yeah. under assault from from every angle. Yeah, and and I want to I want to focus in on Arkansas for a second because they just passed one of the most restrictive bills. And what's you know to the governor's credit, he vetoed it. Yeah. 
But that veto got overridden? Because apparently in Arkansas, you can override a veto with a simple majority, which is like, what's the point of having a veto yeah. at that point? That is completely ridiculous. Um, so the bill basically said that um, minors were not allowed to be prescribed puberty blockers. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about puberty blockers for a second. And the reason why I want to I want to hone in on this issue is because there are several other states that are uh, actually bordering Arkansas. Yeah, that are considering the exact same. And, and so Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana are all considering legislation that either uh, limits access to care or, you know, also restricts the participation of trans kids in, in sports. Yeah. According to tracking and some, the, some uh, of these bills, the some of these bills literally criminalize this type of treatment. Like they, the doctors yeah. can like be, uh, charged with like criminal charges for for undergoing these treatments that are like agreed by the patient and the doctor to be the best course of action it's like it's incredibly restrictive if if it, it's it's just overwhelming that a state would ever presume to intervene in this way yeah so and it's also the first bill of its of this of its kind like arkansas's yeah. bill is the first bill passed into state law of its kind and the thing is, they're trying to sell this as protecting youth. Yeah. So let me let me go ahead and I'm going to state their argument. And then mm-hmm. we're going to break apart why it is 100% bullshit. Yeah. And I'm going to try to stay calm <laughs> because this is an issue that I get really worked up about. But let's let's go ahead and lay out what their argument is. So... The conservative argument, or at least the the anti-trans argument in this case, is basically that children, when they're young, when they're you know haven't gone through puberty yet, they're at a developmental age in which they can't possibly know what's best for them. So the idea of allowing them to undergo medication that uh, hinders their development is stupid because they're just kids. Mm-hmm. How could they possibly know what gender they are? How could they possibly know um th- how could they possibly know enough to know that this is the choice that they want to make when they're just kids? And parents shouldn't be making their that choice for the kids because again, it if we're talking about um a life altering medication that's going to prevent them from undergoing puberty, then it's the job of the government to protect the children from making a decision that is going to hurt them. So one of the other arguments that they that is often made, not just by legislators, but by uh, just people in general, anti-trans people in general, is basically that the reason why there seems to be more discussion about trans youth is because of trans visibility. You have more trans Mm -hmm. adults and that is leading more children to just be confused about who they are because they're seeing what should be. And again, this is their argument, not mine. They're seeing what should be a man dressing up like a woman. 
And that just confuses them and makes them think that that's what they're supposed to do. So that's the argument. Here's why it's bullshit. So number one, it is actually not true that puberty blockers are permanent. So what puberty yeah. blockers do, so, so the standard treatment for a trans youth, you know, uh, clinically you would refer to it as gender dysphoria. The standard treatment is if somebody is identified as having gender dysphoria prior to them going through puberty, then the standard treatment is to put them on um, puberty blockers. Yeah. Different from hormone blockers. Puberty blockers just present, prevent the person from going through puberty. So what's yeah. important to note is that for an assigned at birth male who is trans going through puberty um, can actually be very traumatizing. Mm -hmm. It can be very traumatizing because the voice is getting deeper. They're growing facial hair. And of course, uh, genitalia growth. Um, and then mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of it, for uh, sign at birth females who are trans, um, it's the, you know, it's the growth of breasts, the uh, having of periods, mm -hmm. um, you know, different types of body hair. So that can actually be legitimately traumatizing for yeah. a, uh, you know, for a trans youth. Yeah. And on top of that, it can actually increase suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. So again, putting aside like the societal bullying that happens against trans people, mm -hmm. just the act of going through puberty can feel traumatizing because, uh, you know, it, it, it feels like you're going through the wrong puberty. So what, yeah, the, exactly. what the puberty blockers do is it's an injection. It's a once a month, month injection, and it just puts a pause button. It just it's exactly. it's a pause it, button on going through puberty. It delays. It's not something that's like it's not like gender reassignment surgery or something like that. It's in no yeah. way as permanent as as these lawmakers are trying to make it out to seem. Yeah. So if we're going to make the argument that you know kids might not have an understanding of who they are yet, fine. If we if we want to capitulate to that argument. That still doesn't uh, doesn't address that. That still doesn't mean that we shouldn't allow mm -hmm. trans youth to have puberty blockers. In fact, because the idea is, when you do that, it allows them to grow up more in order to figure out different treatment plans, how they want to go about, um, uh, being a trans youth. Yeah. If anything, that is an argument for puberty blockers. They buy yeah. time for someone to grow, develop, and mature mentally so that they are able to, you know, if you accept, even if you accept that argument, so that they're able to, to understand their identity better. Yeah, so, exactly. because that's the thing, like, yeah, with, when, when going through puberty, as Nathan mentioned, can be an exceedingly traumatic event when your, your mental identity does not line up with the changes that your body is undergoing. It, uh, and, and, the thing is, like, as Nathan mentioned, according to the Mayo Clinic, like, puberty blockers can improve mental health and well-being, reduce depression and anxiety, improve social interactions and integration with other kids, and eliminate the need for future surgeries, uh, and reduce thoughts or actions related to self-harm, which are disproportionately common among the trans community. 
Not and not only because of of societal stigmas, but also just because of the extreme um, uh, mental and emotional uh, trauma of going through the the process that we described. It's also important to note that gender reassignment surgery. First off, not all trans people end up having gender sure. reassignment surgery. Not all not all trans people want that. Yeah. Like to a lot of trans people, they don't feel like they need that in order to express their gender. Yeah. But on top of that, even under a regular treatment plan from a doctor, that usually does not happen prior to the person turning 18 anyway. Sure. So this this bill is a case of government overreach. Yeah. There's actually a pretty good conservative argument against this. And in, and in fact, the uh, the Arkansas governor who vetoed this, he made this argument. Mm-hmm. He basically said from a conservative position, the it should not be the government's job to get between a trans youth and their doctor and their doctor when figuring exactly. out what their what their plan should be. Yeah. And on top of that, you want to talk about protecting children? Mm-hmm. So according to the Trevor Project, one in three transgender and non-binary youth have attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. One in three transgender youth have attempted suicide in just the last 12 months. So yeah. once a year, basically, a third of trans youth attempt suicide. On top of that, and this this part really got me. So there was a Senate hearing on the bill, and uh, Dr. Michelle Hutchinson, who is a doctor in charge of the only gender spectrum clinic in Arkansas. So it's the, it's the, the gender spectrum clinic at Arkansas's uh, Children's Hospital in Little Rock. So the only trans-friendly clinic in the, in the state. She testified about the impact of the legislature on, on her patients. And she said, quote, just after this bill passed the house, these kids heard about it. I've had multiple kids in our emergency room because of an attempted suicide just in the last week. The decision to vote for this bill resulted in children attempting suicide. And that's just in Little Rock. That is just in Little Rock. Imagine how it was throughout the rest of the state. You're talking about hundreds of trans youth, of children, attempting to take their own life because of a vote that you made claiming that it was to protect youth. Shame on you. That's bullshit. You're a fucking disgrace. And you're not representing your people. So the, the, the biggest reason why this really gets me, why this one is really, this is really difficult for me, is because when I was a kid, um, there was this, this couple that I knew in my church, uh, one, of which, one of which was a trans man. Um, one, one, of, one of the people in the couple was a trans man. And they were, they were, friends, they were friends of my family in that church. It was a Unitarian Universalist church, so a little bit more progressive when it comes to, um, you know, very progressive when it comes to uh, issues of LGBT equality. 
And when I was a kid, they had to move out of the state because they, they felt like they had to, they had to escape the, the anti-trans, the anti-LGBT discrimination that they had faced. They, they were driven out of the state. And I remember my parents trying to explain to me why I was no longer going to see them. And I remember just being really confused. And so the, there's a Business Insider article that was talking about a specific uh, trans woman uh, named Jacqueline Middleton, who lived, who has lived in Arkansas most of her life. And she's planning on moving out of the state now mm-hmm. because of these anti-trans bills, because of this anti-trans legislation. When you are passing laws that are causing your constituency to feel the need to flee because you are discriminating, like you are, you are legislatively discriminating against their identity. You are not representing the people. You are not doing your job. You are not suited for public office. And we can't let this continue. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Dershowitz bag. I almost got you there. <laughs> Fake out. I actually, so Nathan, I actually almost, said Dersh- I almost said Dershowitz bag. Like, oh, really? I almost said Dershowitz oh, bag with you. Yeah. <laughs> so Nathan, uh, what is a Dershowitz bag anyway? So a Dershowitz bag award is an award that we like to give out to people who just make terrible, horrific, hilariously self-defeating arguments and it is, of course, named after Alan Dershowitz, after that, that famous argument during the uh, Trump impeachment trial where he said, hey, Trump had to cheat because he thought it was in the best interest of the country for him to win. So it's okay that he cheated. <laughs> now, that's that a D-bag if I've ever heard one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, man, Michael, and I'm excited. Our, yeah. Who is our D-bag this week, Michael? This week, I, I can't believe he hasn't been a D-bag before. I don't think he has been, although I know he's been an asshat. We've got yeah, Senate Minority Leader, and oh, it always feels good to say that, <laughs> Mitch McConnell. Yeah, he's definitely Yay. been an asshat. Uh, and uh, so yeah, so the- Mitch McConnell, yeah, he made an argument patently self-defeating because, as we all know, Mitch McConnell is one of the most corrupt uh, politicians in Washington. And I don't even need a qualifier for that. I I think nope. I think he's number one. <laughs> I think he's I need, think he's number one on. I think he is the most corrupt politician in Washington. I mean, yeah. at least his corruption has the widest range of effect. So I don't even need a qualifier. Yeah. And so he was talking about the fact that uh, some corporations are pulling out of uh, doing some voluntary actions in Georgia, um, like various events and things, because of Georgia's uh, recent voter uh, limiting legislation. And he was telling America's corporations, his favorite group of folks, to stay out of politics. And he said that uh, it's quite stupid for major companies to jump in the middle of highly controversial issues. (laughs) Stay out of politics. God, when I first saw this clip, when I first From the saw man the clip who, of him saying that, I yeah. laughed out loud so hard, and and Jess like was watching it, and she was just like, "Oh, are you fucking serious?" 
<laughs> and as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh no, we got a D bag here. We got a D bag yep, here. Absolutely. Cause, cause because Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell is telling corporations yeah. to stay out of politics. Mitch McConnell. How'd you think you got then, there in the first place, Mitch? And then later, <laughs> later he realized, oh shit. No, no, no. I didn't mean stop bribing me. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. I didn't mean stop bribing me. <laughs> no, 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 money, he, money, he money, money, clarified. He later clarified, oh, I'm, of course, I'm not talking about campaign contributions. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so blatant. So me... Stay out of politics. Accept the money, please. Yeah. So let, let's get this straight. Okay. So the reason why corporations are allowed to donate an unlimited amount of money to super PACs is because the Supreme Court decided that money was free speech. So apparently in McConnell's mind, money is free speech, but speech is not free speech. <laughs> oh <laughs> man, that's so is, funny. I would just call him a fucking idiot, but the thing is, I know he's not. I know yeah. for a fact that he's not an idiot because like, he just doesn't care. He just doesn't give a shit. He wears his corruption like a badge of honor. He owns mm -hmm. his corruption. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. I mean, remember, this is the guy we were talking about earlier who had the backbone to say that the tax cuts would be budget neutral, be deficit neutral. And then when they weren't, he was like, oh, shit. Well, guess we got to cut Social Security and Medicaid, the two most popular social programs in the United States. <laughs> like... This guy is so freaking corrupt and so freaking terrible and cartoonishly evil that he makes Trump look like a saint. And I do not say that lightly. <laughs> I do not say that lightly. He makes Trump look like a saint. I don't know what I could add to that. <laughs> so congratulations to Senator Mitch McConnell, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, for being this week's D-bag. Okay, so for our third segment, uh, we wanted to talk about something that, you know, Nathan and I talk about casually all the time, uh, and we just wanted to, we wanted to bring it to the podcast because of so many common misunderstandings about, about socialism, communism, and, and, and Marxism, I guess, uh, in general, which is just kind of such loaded terms. So we wanted to actually, like, yeah. take a minute to, to talk about what these concepts mean, um, what they are, what they're not. Um, and ultimately how like taking these concepts seriously from an intellectual perspective can help us out a lot. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that I do want to go ahead and caveat real quick is that, um, neither myself nor Michael identify as Marxists. And nope. if anyone in the future tries to take this segment and tries to say, see, Nathan's a Marxist. Or Michael's a Marxist. <laughs> if anybody ever tries to do that, if we're, say, running for office or whatever, if anybody ever tries to do that, we're just being clear right now, that person is either an idiot or a shyster, mm -hmm. and you should not take them intellectually seriously or creatively seriously in any possible way because neither of us are Marxists. But you don't have to be a Marxist in order to take a second and actually understand what the ideology entails. We're, I'm a social Democrat. 
Um, So I do reject a lot of the fundamental tenets of Marxism. And I'll explain why I disagree with Marxism ultimately towards the end of this. But Mm. it is still an important topic to discuss. It is, it is significant in history and it, it is significant in overall dialogue. That's why yeah. even the most libertarian or the most conservative of conservatives should study this. Not to yep, necessarily absolutely. agree with it, but just to understand it. And if for no other reason than what Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto, which is the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all are its own grave diggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. So, like, a lesson is that, you know, if you take these ideas seriously, you can avoid digging your own grave. That means you should listen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, And we'll also talk a little bit why the the bourgeoisie is... uh, I love saying that. (laughs) Bourgeoisie. Kind of have been digging their own graves recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we'll we'll get to that. So let's yeah. let's talk about what the theory of Marxism is. And I'm I'm referring to it as a theory and not an ideology for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. And that is that Karl Marx viewed the progression towards communism as a kind of natural evolution of society. Mm-hmm. And there are four major levels in which society goes through in order to progress towards communism. And it goes, and, and it has to be in this order. It's very important that it's in this order. It goes feudalism, capitalism, socialism, and communism. And it has to be in that order. All right? Yeah. So, so let's start by talking about feudalism. All right? So feudalism is basically you, uh, you, know, you have a king, you have a monarch, you have people that are put in play in their in a place of power because mm-hmm. of where they were born. Yeah. You know, there is this idea of nobility and it's it's and the class is based off of that nobility. The yeah. class is based on blood. A huge part of Marx's theory is about the relationship between the owners of capital and the owners of labor. And you'll see these yeah. these themes run throughout these stages of history. Um, yeah. Because ultimately, they are what drive the. Uh, they are two of the main forces that drive the the social and and historical uh, uh, development throughout these stages. And when yeah. you hear someone refer to the bourgeoisie, they're talking about the owners of capital. And when they refer to the proletariat, they're talking about uh, the laboring class. Yeah, so think working class on that one. Um, So in this case, the bourgeoisie would be like kings and queens and nobles, and the proletariat would be, you know, the like the the the, the gentry, the uh, the the serfs, you know, the 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 peasants. So the idea here is that from there, there would be a revolution that would lead into capitalism, which he defined as a good thing and an important step for several reasons. So Mm -hmm. first off, um, capitalism allows for mass production. Yeah. Second off, capitalism gets rid of blood-based nobility, mm-hmm. which is progress. He viewed as progress. All right? So basically the idea is the people that are in power are the people with money. It's not necessarily because your last name is X. It's because you you have you have money, and that's why, that's why you're in charge. Um, and... 
Another important aspect of capitalism is that it leads to industrialization. Yes. And industrialization is what creates mass production. Because here's the thing. He specifically argued that there cannot be any type of communist or socialist revolution if there are not more resources than people. Yeah. Like if you are able to produce enough product in order for there to, to, in order to get rid of scarcity. Yep. That's the only way that you could potentially have any type of, uh, uh, any type of communist or socialist revolution. If yeah. there are scarcities, which, you know, will definitely, which are inevitable if you are just in feudalism and you don't through go through capitalism, then there needs to be a hierarchy in order to decide where that Who is distributed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Who gets what? So, so this is, the, so these, this introduces two key themes to Marx's theory of history. One is technological innovation which drives efficiency. And the second theme is scarcity, which is the most is one of the most important ones because scarcity is what drives requiring a system to divide up the goods that a society has and the capital that's used to produce them. Yeah, exactly. So so now we're we're in the development of capitalism. And so what's inevitably going to happen in capitalism, it, according to Karl Marx, is basically that once you have industrialization, that means that the means of production are going to be owned by the richest people. Because yeah. it's going to be much more financially feasible to just have factories and machines as the centerpiece of your economy, mm-hmm. which will basically make you know the, the individual town craftsmen be obsolete. Yep. And not only that, but the only people that are going to be able to afford that machinery are going to be the richest people, which means mm-hmm. that they're going to have an exorbitant amount of control over the economy, which basically yeah. ends up leading you, you know, as, as Karl Marx would argue, that leads you into the same problem that you had under feudalism, which is that exactly. the, you know, the amount of wealth is going to be shared among a very small minority. And, and there's a reason in Karl Marx's theory why this inevitably is true. And that is because of how value is created. So he, he specifically emphasized something called the labor theory of value, which is, which is complex, but we can break it down pretty simply, which is basically that in order for, two, in order for a commodity to be transformed into something via production into something of greater value in order to drive profit— you need to do, introduce something else into the equation. And the other thing in that equation is labor via the yeah. working class, right? Yeah. So you take raw material, you run it through your production process and infuse it with labor and therefore increase its value, which is then able to be sold at a higher value, something that's more valuable. And... and Notice here that in order to make a profit as the owner of that capital, you need to pay the laborer less in money than the value he adds, he or she adds to your product so that you can capture that surplus as, uh, as, as profit. 
And so given the profit yeah. motive, you will continue to try to pay your labor less and less and extract more and more from them, which is the theory of exploitation. So at, and then as efficiency increases, as technology improves, requiring less infusion of labor, it bids the price in the labor market further and further down. And so you get this yeah. inevitable concentration of profit and and uh, and capturing of that labor surplus in in the the capital owning class, the bourgeoisie. And then you know the the theory also goes here that the capitalist, and when I say capitalist here, I'm talking about like the factory owner, does have a vested interest in keeping their workers alive but only at the barest necessities. So that means that they're going to inevitably pay them the minimum amount that they need to. And mm -hmm. that right there is important because as you continue to have a concentration of wealth, as you continue to have uh, workers, usually specifically factory workers, being paid less and less and less for their work, eventually, there's going to be a boiling point where there's going to be another revolution. And that leads us mm -hmm. into socialism. So socialism takes a few different forms. So what socialism actually is, if we, if we just define what socialism is, it's um, a, a, a theory of economic and social organization that advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. So basically what this... This can take the form in uh, the way of sort of smaller things like, you know, worker-owned conglomerates. Um, or it can take the shape of more of larger governmental structures, which is kind of what um, Marx, Marx was talking about. So the reason why we often associate socialism with big government mm -hmm. is because ideally, if the citizens own the government you know, because there's some type of democratic, uh, because they're, they're democratically elected, then what that means is when the government makes a choice, that's the community making a choice. So mm -hmm. if the government owns or regulates an industry or owns or regulates the economy, then that is, then it is being owned or regulated by the community as a whole. So mm -hmm. that's, that's where we often get the idea that, uh, that, Government equals socialism. So, so notice a couple things there. First of all, socialism is not something that you artificially impose at, at any time. It's not a governmental structure per se, which means that uh, pretending like socialism is just something is, is just equal to big government is a vast misunderstanding of socialism, which has led to a lot of problems. And notice the second thing is that socialism requires perfect or near perfect representation of the community. So that's yeah. the thing, like socialism itself ends up being like the perfect reflection of democracy, essentially. You are dividing up every, the goods in the community according to the, the representation of, of the community itself. Yeah. And so then the idea is that socialism will take us through a, a path in which um, we can abolish economic inequality, we can abolish social inequality, 
we abolish classes because the economy is 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 controlled by the community as a whole. So mm-hmm. one of the th- one of the important notes to make is that if the government is not a reflection of the community as a whole, then it is not technically socialism. Yeah. Which is why governments such as Nazi Germany are not were not technically socialism. Yeah. Or, at or, least or governments not... like Russia, like the USSR. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not technically socialism because you had a very clear class structure. You had a mm-hmm. very clear hierarchy that was not owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Yeah. So the fear-mongering about socialism is actually fear-mongering about totalitarianism, masquerading yeah. as socialism. Which we should fear-monger about totalitarianism. It's Absolutely. Bad. Yeah. Whether it it's terrible. whether it's secret police and fascists <laughs> or yeah. or or people pretending to be socialists. Yeah. Yeah. Um and and the fact of the matter is it is important to note that there have been a lot of socialists and communists throughout history that have been apologists towards totalitarian regimes. Mm-hmm. And that has, you know, that has definitely been really like that has really hurt um, their own movement because it, it's you shouldn't be an apologist for like if you are a communist if you are someone who actually believes in those principles if you are a socialist if you are someone that believes in those principles that is not what the ussr was exactly yeah and you know and trying to be more like that trying to push to be more like that just represents a fundamental misunderstanding of number one what they actually did, number two, how bad it was, and number three, your own ideology. Yes. So so anyway, this brings us to communism, which is, which, when I talk about communism, some of you might hear this and think, well, that's very far from what I have come to understand communism as. Uh, and again, <laughs> this is communism according to Marx. So if, if you can absolutely make the argument that the word communism has been twisted to the point where it basically does just mean totalitarianism. Yeah. So like in communist China, communism is responsible with, is, 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 uh, communism is equivalent to, uh, to totalitarianism. Um, you know, one party rule and, uh, and basically a, a, uh, an authoritarian government. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but the original idea behind communism is once you get to the point where you have eliminated economic inequality and mm-hmm. there is mass production so that there's no scarcity, then basically there's no longer any need for private property because everybody has what they need. There's no longer any need for government because, you know, if... um if everything, if everybody has what they need, then why would you need to take from other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the if, source if of disputes. completely eliminated is... poverty. Yeah, yeah. The source of disputes is kind of eliminated. Now, you know, maybe there is a law enforcement. Um, there is some type of law enforcement in some cases of like you know personal disputes, but for the most part, there's really no need for government anymore. Um, and you know, basically, people hold hands and sing kumbaya. And this right here is where I think, uh, for me, communism does fall apart. Mm-hmm. So the common argument that people will make 
about communism is that, or against communism, is that humans are inherently lazy. And because of that, uh, if you try to have a system in which nobody, uh, in which like money is no longer a factor, government is no longer a factor, it's just not going to be realistic and no one's going to work and therefore nothing's ever going to get done. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the idea behind communism is that there is a natural evolution towards it. Mm-hmm. So the thing that Marxists would argue is that people's approach to labor will fundamentally change as the economy changes. Sure. So right now, we as capitalists can't comprehend what that world could potentially be like, but that's because we are not like we are in an economic system and we're raised in an economic system in which the idea of, uh, of labor for the sake of the community is kind of unthinkable. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot to be learned from Marxism. And I think the biggest thing that I take from it is the best way to prevent Marxism or the the best way to prevent communism and, you know, true socialism is to prevent the lead up to it. Yeah. And the lead up to it is that extreme inequality that can result from unfettered capitalism. Mm-hmm. So I don't like the idea of abolishing private property. I yeah. don't. I don't like the idea. I don't even like the idea of, of abolishing money. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like the idea of abolishing capital. I really, I really do believe in the idea of a meritocracy. Yeah. Now, what we have right now is not a meritocracy, not by a long shot, but money is a really good way in order to actually create a meritocracy if it is implemented correctly. So money for actual labor, for actual merit-based labor, makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. So everybody under, under, my, under my ideology, which again is social democracy, which is a mix of capitalism and socialism, all right? It is definitely not socialism. It is definitely not uh, communism. Um, and it is, it is absolutely capitalism is everybody starts out with the bare necessities, all right? So you don't have to worry about healthcare, like based on your socioeconomic status. You don't need to worry about education based on your socioeconomic status. And you also get a universal basic income, which will, again, give you the bare necessities. Mm -hmm. And the people that work harder, the people that work better, the people that work smarter, you know, with the same opportunities as everybody else, they get more money. They get ahead. And the people that don't work as hard, they're still taken care of, but they don't get yeah. as much because you get what you put in. That to me is a true meritocracy. And I don't like the fact that that cap that, that, that communism and socialism get rid of that. Because I think that's mm. a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. The idea that in order to not have the boogeyman of socialism, we can't reach towards that vision is i mean the architect of its own destruction yeah the idea that like what we should be offering the people in our society for good faith participation in that society is the opportunity to watch other people get exceedingly wealthy while you like struggle to satisfy your basic needs yeah 
even as you see the world becoming more efficient and 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 you see yourself becoming more obsolete, that's not a vision that you can offer someone and say, don't start a revolution over fighting against that. You know, like yeah. that's not a good reason for someone to want to be a, a, a good participant in society. Yeah. So like at the very least, I even if even if Marx is wrong about the success of communism or true socialism, I think he's been right so far about the drivers of revolution and we should pay attention to that. Yeah. So the bottom line is if you are terrified of socialism and terrified of communism and you don't want it to happen, which again, as a social Democrat, I don't want it to happen. Then what you need to do is don't give people a reason to want it. All right. Yeah. Establish a true meritocracy in which you actually take care of people, get rid of this insane level of economic inequality because if you don't, eventually, it's going gonna, it's gonna to approach a boiling point. All right? So basically what I'm saying is that Bernie Sanders, the crazy Democratic Socialist, who's actually just a social Democrat, his ideology is actually your best chance of preventing like, the revolution that you're terrified of. Because if people are actually in a society in which they are taken care of, if we do reach a point in which um, we are able to eliminate poverty and ensure that you do actually have an economy where you get what you put in, then in my opinion, that's like that's the ideal society. Mm-hmm. Like that is the ideal society. And I don't see any reason to keep to keep pushing farther if we can get to that. Now, I don't I don't think we're going to get to that in my lifetime. I think it's going to be several lifetimes before we can get to that. But the best way in order to make sure that people don't you know, you know, don't do exactly what you're afraid of them doing is to not make them want to. And the modern day Republican Party, the top 1%, the uh the bougie capitalist pigs <laughs> they're they're becoming the architects of their own destruction and i really hope that they don't ruin it for the rest of us okay and with that we will finish up our episode with our highlights so nathan what's your highlight this week my highlight this week was i uh, this last weekend i judged the american forensics association national tournament and i saw mm-hmm. some really really good speeches uh i i i i uh i judged the poetry semifinal round and phew, i mm. was sobbing i was sobbing during the entire time they were so freaking good and it's just That's it was just so nice to see the advocates of tomorrow and to see um to see where they're at what they're doing how talented they are and it really did make me very optimistic for the future. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. What about you, Michael? What's your What's your highlight? I think my highlight is that I'll be able to see my niece uh, this weekend. Mm. My niece Natalie is having her first birthday party, and Bree and I have had our first dose of vaccine. And everybody's been isolating, so we're going to be able to get together to uh, to actually have her, you know, 
celebrate with her. And, uh, yeah, she's adorable. I'll get to see my, my in-laws and, and, and I always love seeing them. So yeah, that's nice. my highlight. Nice. And with that, thank you so much for listening to Perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>